tonight we start a new series um, that is in line with our pastoral vision for the year. It's called Everyday Mystic. And the hope of the series is this. Um, we just finished Exodus, and the way that the New Testament writers talk about Exodus is in a few different ways, uh, two different ways specifically. Last week we looked at one way where Paul looks back on the Exodus generation and says, um, learn from their mistakes, learn from the lessons of how they uh, died in the wilderness, right? Uh, the other way that Paul looks back um, and John looks back uh, on the Exodus generation is that if they just would have known what was coming, they would, it would have blown their minds, the fact that the God who delivered them from Egypt, who was on top of Mount Sinai, who, had to be cont- who like was contained in the temple, that God is now dwelling in us. That, that God that did it now lives in us, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Oh my gosh, if they would have ever thought that, they would have blown their minds. That's kind of how the Exodus, they look back on the Exodus. So what I want to do is, in light of our annual pastoral theme of cultivating intimacy with God, I want to talk about um, living in union with God, the fact that Christ dwells in us. And that we dwell in God. And I want to talk about cultivating a life of intimacy. And we're going to do that through the, through the, um, the idea of mysticism. So here's what I want to do tonight. First, I want to introduce you to the concept of mysticism and try to ease some of the defenses you may have around that idea or that concept by showing Christian mysticism's origin in the New Testament and the early church. Now, the first part of this teaching will be dry, okay? It will be very dry. So what I, I suggest that you do to stay awake is take notes. Um, then I want to show why I want to use the concept of mysticism in this series that we're entering into around and talk about some practices of cultivating intimacy with God and what these practices are. Then I want to talk about Ephesians 3 and why Paul wants us all to be mystics and what I mean by being an everyday mystic. And finally, where it gets really good, is I want to have our kids minister, Marissa, come up. And she's co-teaching with me, by the way, tonight. And I, yes, amazing. Um, it's, it's, just wait, it's still good. Uh, and then I want her to come up and talk about how we can learn to be a mystic uh, with and through the lives of nature's most profound mystics, children. And that's where it gets really good. So, um, and, then, uh, and then we'll pray and respond to God. Is that cool? Sound like a plan? All right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a sampling of verses of Scripture, um, and they're all on the screen. If you want to turn your Bible somewhere, turn it to John chapter 17. I will get there eventually in the teaching. But I want, as I read these Scriptures, I hope that they start to, what I'm, I'm reading starts to come into focus in what we get into tonight. So follow along with me on the screen, and, uh, and then I'll pray. First is, uh, the first two te- the texts are from Jesus, and then the last three are from Paul, the apostle. Jesus in John 15 says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. What Jesus is saying here is that I tell my friends secrets. Hold on to that for a second. He goes on to say, I have much more to say to you. 
more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, all the truth. And he will not seek on his, speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. What Jesus is saying here is that there is more to say. And when the Spirit comes, he'll tell you everything. And he'll tell you more and more and more things as you live out your life with me. Next, Paul. Paul, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages the whole Exodus generation, all the prophets, hidden for generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And what is this mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is a mystery that Christ, God in all of his fullness, lives in us. That's a mystery, Paul says. Then he says in Ephesians, in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We're a temple, the churches. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. As I have already written briefly, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul wants everyone to know this mystery that he's talking about. And he goes on, he goes, actually, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the, filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So Paul is saying here, he's praying here, that he wants you to know something that is beyond knowledge. And that you, being a finite being, would be filled with an infinite God. Lord, we pray for these things. The mind can't conceive them. The heart must receive them. That's it. And so I pray our hearts would receive this, God. I pray for an, uh, like, an, like an open heart to test even... With what I'm saying, may you test it, Lord. If it's true, God, may it abide. We want to hear from you, Spirit. So, Spirit of the living God, speak now. I pray for this church that we would all be people who are walking around in this beautiful union with you, God. And because of that, bringing about renewal everywhere we go. For Christ's sake, in whose strong name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, first off, I think that the biggest hurdle in talking about mysticism in a church like ours, which is a non-denominational Protestant Christian church, is I think some people might ask, isn't mysticism found in other religions? Isn't mysticism found in other religions? And the answer is yes. And so is prayer. And so is singing. And so are holy scriptures. And so are things like priests and prophets. Mysticism can be found, like prayer, in other faith, faith traditions, this is true. What I'll be talking about today and in this series is specifically Christian mysticism. Now, you may be thinking, doesn't mysticism come from the East and Eastern religions, like Vedana or Zen? And if so, isn't Christian mysticism just Hinduism or Buddhism with a little bit of Jesus thrown in? 
because that's kind of what we do in San Francisco. Sprinkle a little Jesus on it, and it's a little bit good. The answer is no. No. First of all, Christianity is an Eastern religion or faith or philosophy, whatever you want to call it. It was founded in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit filled the church. Talk about something mystic. That's when the church started. Second, Christianity has its own homegrown mystical tradition with its own practices, wisdom, and values, which diverges from other mystical traditions, and I would argue fulfills the true hope of all mystical endeavors. And so if you are a mystic in San Francisco, you're not religious at all, you're like, I'm more mystical, or you know friends that are not, not about religion at all, they're way more mystical, I would invite them to this series, because what I hope to show is that Jesus Christ fulfills every single mystical endeavor. Now, what is mysticism? What is it? Now, some of you might have this question. I heard even backstage beforehand, like, people are talking like, mysticism sounds like paganism. What is mysticism? Mysticism is actually a very hard word to define. It's an elusive word. It's a vague word that can mean so many things depending on your discipline or even your faith tradition. The word mysticism comes from the Greek word moeo, M-U-E-O, if you're taking notes. The Greek word moeo, which means to close or to shut. The word can refer to closing the eyes or closing the mouth. It can also refer to being introduced into the mysteries or being initiated into the mystery. Thus, the word mysticism involves shutting, closing, hiddenness, but also it means learning a secret, being brought into a profound mystery, and keeping your mouth shut long enough to listen for what's really going on. That's what mysticism is. So mysticism before Christianity had to do more with seeing some divine mystery through the means of sitting still for a long period of time and connecting with the absolute or the divine or the center of all that is, who itself is a great mystery. And pagan mystics would go to great extremes to guard every mystery they received in silence or in meditation or in prayer. And they would protect and veil all of these mysteries with rituals and codes. And so they were called mystics because they held the mystery to the great knowledge or the great absolute or the divine. Then along came Christianity. And the writers of the New Testament picked up on this Greek word moeo, which is mystery, and they picked up some of the language of the mystics, even in their writings. This shouldn't be a surprise at all. Paul, when he writes, uses language and concepts available to him everywhere to describe the Christian life and faith. Everywhere. He pulls from everyone. But the New Testament writers use mystery in an entirely different way. Even if you study the history of mysticism, Christianity diverges from all mystic traditions. And they create a whole new different stream or a whole new different path though they have learned from other paths as well. See, the emphasis in much of the New Testament is not on secrets kept, but on secrets revealed. Not on mysteries kept, but on mysteries revealed. That is the crucial difference between Christianity and the mystery religions. When the New Testament talks about a mystery, it's talking about something that once was a mystery, but now is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Example, what was once a mystery was that God wanted to live among his people, and at the same time, he told his people to be separate and distinct from other people. How in the world is that going to work? 
How are you going to be the Jewish people and be a light to the nations when God wants you to not cohabitate with the nations? How is that going to work? That's a mystery. And Paul is saying, oh, actually, the mystery is for Jew and for Gentile, God himself would live in us, dwell in us, and through that, we would be a light to the world. And so this mystery that was concealed for ages and generations, Paul said, oh, I know the mystery now, and I'm not keeping it to myself. It's Christ Jesus, the mystery that has been revealed. And not only that, not only does Christianity diverge from in mysticism in that it reveals the, the knowledge, it reveals the mystery, I would add Christianity fulfills every mystery religion, every single one of them, Kabbalah, Zen, Sufism, because... Jesus reveals to us what union with God is. See, every single mystery religion tries to get union or tries to get oneness with something. Some, and, some, and you can be a mystic and be, um, you could be a, uh, a non, maybe I should say, should be, you could be a non-Christian mystic and be atheist. Because you're not really trying to connect to God, you're trying to connect to the source, the thing, the life. The Greek word would be the logos. The, 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 the goal of everything, the center of everything, you're trying to connect to it in some sort of way. Christianity fulfills that in that Jesus makes God not just known, but makes oneness or union with God possible. And not through our own efforts, but through his life and death and resurrection. By his spirit, as we read, he invites us deeper in. He invites us deeper into friendship, deeper into union with God, and not just theologically. I know if you come to a non-denominational Christian church that has the Bible, the actual Bible open every single week, you kind of, you, you use your mind a lot. You want to be intellectually stimulated. You want to know how all the dots connect. And that is okay, and there is a place for that. But friendship with God or union with God has to go beyond that into an actual experience of God. The hope of the Christian faith is Christ in us, the hope of glory. You don't get that by reading a book. You get, you get that by spending, you, you get that by cultivating this union with God. You get that by Paul saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray that you get how wide and high and deep and long is the love of Christ and that you would come to know something that's unknowable. How do you do that? Well, you have to read a lot. That's, no, no, that's not the thing. How do you know that? Through prayer. Through experiencing God. How do you know something that's ineffable? How do you know something that is beyond knowledge? The only way is to taste and see. And so this is the hope. And then actually, actually, this is actually at the center of all of the teachings of Jesus. The center. If you have a Bible, I'm going to, I didn't get to put this in your programs, I didn't, I forgot, to be honest, sorry, so, but here it is, John 17, if you have a Bible, turn there, I want you to see it with your own eyes, if you have a, a device which is less holy, but still usable than a Bible, it's not called a holy app, this is called a holy Bible, just saying, John 17. Verse 20, okay, this is right in the middle of Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is right in the middle of Jesus praying for himself, and he prays for his disciples, and then something turns, and he starts praying. This is so cool. He starts praying for you and me. 
Jesus prays for us. And it says this right here, and my prayer is not just for them, speaking of his disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? Us. When Jesus sends out his disciples all over the world to go make disciples, and then we come to believe in Jesus, he says that he's praying for us. And look at what he prays. I pray that, pray that they would be, I pray that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I have honestly, confession, I have always taken this to mean Christian unity. I've always thought what Jesus is praying is that you and I would be one, that you and I would be unified, that we'd all get along, that there'd be no denominations, that we would just all kind of like, yeah, all of us getting along. I always thought it meant that until I really started to study union with God and experience union with God. And I realized what Jesus is actually saying is that we would be one with him. And that through our oneness with the Father and with Jesus and with the Spirit, we would be one with each other. Look at it. I pray they would be one. Father, like this. I want them to be one like this. Just as you are in me and I am in you, union. May they also be in us. I pray for them that they would be in us. I want them to be in us, unified with us. And us in them, and them in us, and then them in each other. I want them to be, I want us all to be unified. That the world may believe. Look at verse 22. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Then he defines it. What does one mean? I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. It rhymes, so it has to be true. I and them and you and me, so that we can be brought into unity. You, this is union. That we would be in God and God would be in us. This is Jesus' prayer. Father, I want to pray for them. This is how I want to pray for them. That they would be in us and we would be in them. And then we would have all this unity. And then once we were all unified, once we had union, the whole world would know that, that you sent me. That's what he prays. Jesus could have prayed for a host of things, but he prays for union. Which brings us to the most important definition of mysticism. And the definition we'll be using in our series and what we mean around here by the term Christian mysticism. So write this down. If I had screens, I would put it up there, but I don't. And if I, if I remembered, I would have put this in your program, but I didn't. But, so write this down. Mysticism is the art of union with God. Mysticism is the art of union with God. If you like two definitions, let me give you the second one. Mysticism is the pursuit of or enjoyment of union with God. It's the art of union with God. Some of you guys more artistic are like, oh, the art, I like it. It's like a practice, something like I, I, I keep practicing at, and I never perfect it. It's just like an art that keeps going. Good. Some of you guys are like a more of like, I, I need a goal. I need to aim. Okay, here's the goal. The pursuit and the enjoyment of. The pursuit and the enjoyment of union with God. Are you in pursuit of union with God? Are you enjoying union with God? That's the whole, the whole hope of mysticism. Julian of Norwich, a mystic in the 1300s, who was actually the first female author in the English language, put it like this. And thus I saw God and sought God. I had God, and at the same time I wanted God. And this is and should be what we are all working towards. I want God, I had God, I saw God, but I sought God. This mystical union where you want, you want to go in more. This is what she describes as mysticism. 
A.W. Tozer, a modern mystic, wrote in The Pursuit of God the same sort of thing. He said, to have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Mysticism is the practice, the pursuit, and the enjoyment of union with God. Now, why is mysticism, which is which the Greek root meant hidden mystery, now have to do with union with God? If it was once, mysticism once meant hidden mystery, why is it now, why are we defining it as union with God? Because the mystery was revealed, which is, according to the Apostle Paul, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery that was revealed in Jesus is that Christ is in you. That's the mystery. That union that we have now is through Christ. And this is why I want to use the concept of mysticism in the culmination of our annual theme of cultivating intimacy with God. Now, does the word mystic or mysticism have baggage? Yeah, it has baggage, it has carry-ons, it has it all, right? It has it all. But so does the word Christianity, and so does the word evangelical, and so does the word church. I find it better for the world to live, I find it better for the world if we live into healthy, biblical, and nuanced definitions of these words and not just get rid of them altogether. The same, the same goes for me with mysticism. But, you know, the main reason why I want to use this term everyday mystic is because I think, I really believe Christianity is mystical. At the core of its teachings is that you can have union with God through Christ. Think about that. Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. And you live in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Christ, Paul says in Colossians, you are already seated in the heavenly realms. This is mystical. I didn't come to faith to Jesus because I read all the books and I found that Christianity crossed every T and dotted every I. I didn't come to faith like that. I came to faith in Christ because I met Jesus. Jesus, who was crucified and rose again some 2,000 years ago, I met him in my room when I was 16 years old. Now, does that mean Christianity isn't or doesn't have to be factual? No. The famous Indian evangelist Ravi Zacharias says, I believe in Christianity because it has the most coherence to reality. Yes, that. And there's an extreme mystery because God, who dwells in us, is ineffable. ineffable. He is, he, he's beyond words. He's beyond words. Therefore, if God who dwells in us and us in God is beyond our knowing and too great to describe in words, the only way you can further know him is not through words but through experience. What I'm trying to say can be summed up by the writer Evelyn Underhill when she writes, the Christian mystic is one for whom God and Christ are not merely objects of belief, but living facts experimentally known firsthand, and mysticism for him becomes, insofar as he responds to its demands, a life based on this conscious communion with God. So look at what, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 3. Look at your program. Look at his prayer. He says, I pray, I want to pray that you would come to know what is unknowable. What he actually says there in verse 19, he says, I hope that you would all be mystics. That's what his prayer is. He says, I pray that you be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Is that impossible? Yes. As it, and is it possible? Yes. Can you write a book about it and hand it off to someone else so they can study it and footnote it and know it? No. Couldn't you experience for yourself with 
so much beauty that you don't have words to describe it. Yes. Paul says, basically what he's saying here in Ephesians 3 is, I wish that everyone would be in this room. That you would be filled with uh, the love of God that is beyond understanding or comprehension, that is wider than wide and deeper than deep. And that all the fullness of God would dwell in you, and you are finite, and he is infinite, and I don't even know how that works, but I want it to work. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. The Jesuit theologian Karl Rayner once said, and I'm closing. Mercy, you doing okay? I'm sorry. This is way longer than I thought. Okay. The Jesuit theologian Karl Rayner once said, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or will not exist at all. And what he meant by that was people will either have a dynamic, conscious, and experiential relationship with God, or their faith will be dying or looking for a quick hit of something and try to, to try to keep them alive for another season. Faith will either affect ordinary awareness, create new ways of living, and energize every dimension of life, or it will be formulaic, superficial, and empty. See, with all the global news and pressure of our lives and the questions raised by pluralism, technology, and the human condition, all of these conspire to make belief very, very difficult. And this has always been true. And therefore, faith can't survive on a meager diet provided by the mind through ideas, doctrines, and arguments. Though that is important, it can't just be there. Our faith needs the nourishment that comes from encounters with the divine and experiences of the holy. And that's been my hope for our church this year, that we would cultivate this in our own lives through intimacy with God. And that's what the series is about. It's about trying to help us live into this union with God every day, which is why we're calling it Everyday Mystic. Now, you don't have to go to a hermitage to be this kind of person, but you also can't just assume this will happen. You and I need practices, which is what we'll be talking about for the next several weeks, the practice of silence and meditation that we can hear God, the practice of examination of consciousness so, so, we can, so we can be aware of God throughout the day in contemplation to help us abide in God, which was the promise of Jesus. Now, I can already expect some pushback from two different sides. One side that thinks that we're super new agey now, that we're becoming this wishy-washy church in San Francisco. My hope to you, I would say, is stay and engage and see that this is not only has its roots in the hope and promise of Christ, but this is also rooted in the early church. And more than that, this is what I hope. I hope that as a church in San Francisco, we can live into our city's kingdom heritage. Let me, let me tell you what I mean by that. This city was named after St. Francis of Assisi. We are San Francisco. St. Francis was a mystic that gave up everything to follow God. He was a rich and wealthy man, gave up everything to follow God, to live in obedience and awareness with God every day and to serve the poor. That is our heritage as a city. It's been hijacked by consumerism, making money, the next big thing, gold rush, tech boom, all this stuff's been hijacked by that. The heart of our city is, I think, is the heart of St. Francis. It's like this heart that's like literally beating for God and serving the world. It's our namesake. And I think there's a kingdom vision for our city that God wants us to live into. However, on the other side, I can see some people saying that this world is falling apart and we're just talking about being silent with God. And you're like, where's the teaching about speaking out? And I get that. And I would say, as Mr. Miyagi, patience. <laughs> the most effective you can be is by hearing and responding to the voice of God. I hope to prove that to you and show you examples of how this is true. 
So to everyone, let me ask, enter into the practices that we set forth during this series or introduced during this series, that these practices would open you up to the awareness of God who is always present with us. As Anthony DeMello has said, he described the role of such practices in his brief exchange between a wise teacher and disciple, and it goes like this. The disciple walks up to a wise teacher and says, is there anything I can do to make myself enlightened? And the teacher says, as little as you can do to make the sun rise in the morning. The disciple said, well then, what use are the spiritual exercising sizes you prescribe? And the teacher responds, to make sure you are not asleep when the sun begins to rise. I have a lot to say about this. We need to be awake to what God is doing in us and through us. But I think the best thing to do right now is, is to hear from the, the most natural mystics in the world and learning from them so that we can be aware like children are aware. To do that, I would like to welcome up our children's ministry now. Thanks, Dave. Hi, church family. Woo, I'm buzzing. Okay, so as Dave entered us into this series, The Everyday Mystic, I'm so excited to share with you what I've learned about union with God from spending time, as he said, with some of our most natural mystics in the church, the children. And I so love seeing some of you here. Hi, Maddie. <laughs> okay, so I want to first hear what Jesus has to say from Matthew 18 verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. He's right, yeah. So right away, we may already have some questions about this. Like, why is Jesus telling us to become like children? What about mature Christian faith? What about wisdom and discernment? Well, this is one of the paradoxes of Christian mysticism. To be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. To hold those two consciousnesses together simultaneously, shrewd, wise, discerning, innocent, simple, and in the present. And the thing is, some of us are more faithful or connected to that adult mind, and others of us are more faithful to the childlike mind. And we need to honor both and learn from both, so that's what I'm here to do, to share a little with you what we can learn from the childlikeness that Jesus tells his disciples and us as well to become like. So I've been spending some time with kids, um, not as teacher or a babysitter or even really children's director, but as friend. And I want to share with you what I've learned. The child, there's three childlike dispositions that teach us about living in mystical union with God. And these are those. First, children live in wonder and curiosity. Second, children live in the present. They live in the present so much so they actually draw, they want to draw closer and closer to you when they're near you. And third, children live out of sheer dependence and natural trust. 
Okay, so first, children live in wonder and curiosity. I love watching children when they can get so amazed and excited about the simplest things. You know, they, seriously, they could be walking down the sidewalk and be stopped in their tracks, amazed and awestruck wonder, like over a bug. Like they love it and they'll just like even get their faces to the ground and want to check it out and be curious about it. And um, I'm telling you, some of the most contemplative Christians live this way too. St. Francis, who Dave mentioned earlier, would actually preach to the birds. Seriously, he would see them and he would just start an impromptu sermon. And monks who traveled with St. Francis published, they published one of these sermons. So he once said to the birds that he was in wonder over, he said this, My sweet little sisters, birds of the sky, you are bound to heaven, to God, your creator, and every beat of your wings and every note of your songs, praise him. He has given you the greatest of gifts, the freedom of the air. You neither sow nor reap, yet God provides for you the most delicious food, rivers and lakes to quench your thirst, mountains and valleys for your home, tall trees to build your nest, and the most beautiful clothing, a change of feathers with every season. You and your kind were preserved in Noah's ark. Clearly our creator loves you dearly since he gives you gifts so abundantly. So please beware, my little sisters, of the sin of ingratitude and always sing praises to God. Yeah, isn't that so cool? This is someone who lived in such union with God that the birds inspired him to walk around in gratitude and appreciation for our creator. And this is actually part of what God is calling us to. Imagine a life, your life, where you're blown away in pure joy and wonder by the simple things, the beautiful things that surround us every day. This life is for us too, you guys. And it doesn't end there because with that childlike wonder also comes curiosity. Did you know that kids ask a lot of questions? They love asking questions, and they're not afraid to ask any one of them that pops into their mind. And you know what? They show us so much humility in that willingness to bring what they don't know to the surface. It's like their limitations don't scare them. They're not threatened by the possibility that someone else might know something that they don't know. And this is how we can come to God, too. God is not afraid of our questions. Imagine a life with God, always talking to him, always asking our questions. A contemplative life is in conversation with God all of the time. So let's say a challenge comes up with a coworker, and you don't know what to say. And you may even start feeling the need or the want to defend yourself. Um, uh, you can pause and say, God, I don't know what's going on. What's going on? I need your help. What should I do here? And then actually re-enter the situation with a humble curiosity. The humble curiosity like that our children model for us. Or let's say you're walking down San Francisco and then all of a sudden you feel that weight of, you know, that weight of hopelessness and despair. When you look around you and you just, all you want to do is ask, like, why are some people born into more struggle than others? And why am I here in, in this place? Like, we can actually... Why couldn't we ask God those hard questions? He wants all of them. He wants all of us. You can ask those questions. He is always available to you. So that brings us to the second. Children live in the present. I also love being with children because they are so good at being with me. They're very present and attentive to you. And it's easy. It's fairly easy for them to get close to you very quickly. 
um, they're trusting in that way. And it's a real gift, actually, to experience that nearness to children because it's been a reminder of how God desires us to be in union with him. I really, really started to understand this um, when I babysat for baby Hannah a few weeks ago. So baby Hannah is 12 months old, and I was taking care of her during bedtime hours. Now, we had fun, and bedtime did eventually come around, and we both found ourselves a little outside of our comfort zones. Uh, first of all, Hannah was used to and fully expecting to have mom and dad put her to sleep tonight, that night. Uh, but I was neither of those people, so her plans changed. And so Hannah's mom gave me all the tips for a successful bedtime, right? Strap her in the baby carrier so she's right in front, check. Created a playlist on my phone of her favorite lullabies, check. Wrapped her in a blanket, check. Uh, put your shoes on and take her for a walk, Marissa. I was a little bit inside, like, I don't want to go for a walk. I don't want to go outside. It's, like, kind of cold and darkish, and I'm tired, and I don't want to. I don't want to. Um, but I did. And as I was walking, I was fussing with making sure the blanket was dry, you know, trying to, like, bounce up and down and walk forward at the same time. And pretty quickly, Hannah fell asleep because Mama does know best. And so she fell asleep. And all of a sudden, I realized I am walking really fast for no reason at all. So I slowed down my pace. And when it seemed reasonable to go back inside, I realized I don't, I don't want to go back inside. This is where I want to be. It was quiet. I felt at peace. I felt content. It was beautiful. So eventually, I go inside. Instead of laying her down on the bed, I just decided to lay on the couch with her still strapped to the carrier. And I said that because I didn't want her to wake up, but really I just wanted to snuggle a little bit longer. <laughs> so we're laying on the couch, and this is what really is hard to explain and put to words, but the nearness of Hannah's presence just hit me, you guys. Like, she was literally buckled to me, right? So there, we, neither of us could just accidentally come apart. And her, her little fingers were even, as she slept, still like clutching my jacket. And that's when I felt God's presence ugh, in a beautiful and yet almost too simple to really describe kind of way. Because through baby Hannah, I felt God was showing me what it was, life with him was like. It was that presence, it was that closeness, it was that drawn near to me. And my little encounter with Hannah led me fully into an encounter with God. I felt the intimacy of my loving creator, his peace, his closeness, his care for me. Really through Hannah, God led me into Sabbath rest. I was just laying there. I didn't need to do anything. I wasn't doing anything. Just breathing and fully loving every second of being loved by God in that moment. And, uh, yeah, I think that this is just what happens when we're with babies. Because they are so, babies are so present. And she completely drew me out and beyond what I thought I wanted, out of my comfortable place and into the present. And God is always in the present with us. And I feel really, really grateful for that experience. And I think I'm gonna, actually going to be held dear to my heart for the rest of my life. And I want you to know, church, that it is for all of us 
all of the time, that nearness to God, that connection, that closeness. Imagine a life of this kind of constant closeness to God. Like imagine that for yourself, paying attention to his presence, soaking in his perfect divine love. That's what he's made available to us. That's actually how we were made to walk around and exist full time in the world, connected to the heart of God, in loving union with God. So finally, children live out of sheer dependence and natural trust. This is what makes children able to model union with God so well. It's their ability to surrender to someone outside of themselves to fulfill their needs. This also struck me in my time with baby Hannah because when she, in a vulnerable state, surrendered completely to her care for me, uh, for her, my care for her, it just blew my mind because children are honestly, they're upfront about what they need. They're honest about what their limitations are and what they need. And when I'm with them, they model for me and invite me into this unabashed and risky kind of sharing of myself and my heart. They teach us about vulnerability and, and they teach us what to do with vulnerability. See, a childlike mind set does this. I don't know what to do and I need your help. I am so ill-equipped for this and I surrender it to you. I'm vulnerable, and I trust that you will love me. And Jesus tells us to relate to God in this same way. It requires that we're honest with ourselves and with God. I know it's terrifying to face our needy self. I know, I admit, this is so difficult for me. It's like everything in me wants to be the best and present myself as the greatest. And it speaks directly to the heart of the disciples' question in Matthew 18. They said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They were like, who is the best? Who is the most good? Who has the highest position? Who lacks the least, Jesus? And Jesus, in his wisdom, first brings a child into the midst and then tells them, change and become like little children. And so, church, Jesus is calling us to this kind of union with him where we can bring all of who we are all the places in us that feel less than he wants us. Imagine a life where you can bring all of who you are, all of that, before the perfect love of Jesus. Because only when it's received in vulnerability is divine love transformational. And children model this for us so well. So no matter how old we are, no matter if we feel we're more faithful to that adult consciousness or that childlike consciousness, one thing is always true. All of our hearts ache for the presence of God. So I want to encourage you guys, as we get into this series, go and be around babies and children. Like, get your fingerprint checked first, but go and be around babies and children. And I know sometimes we think, that's not for me, or I'm not good with kids. And it, you're right, when we're with children, it can be uncomfortable because we feel that they get needy, and then we get distant because we're actually afraid to be confronted with our own neediness. But let me tell you, that's an important thing, and that's a gift. So let's learn from the curious, present, surrendered nature of children, and let God expose what we're most afraid of. God wants to meet us there. We need God to meet us there. We need this perfect union with him because he created us for this. Will you guys pray with me? Yes. Father, we love you so much. 
feel so grateful that you are always available. Lord, I pray the, the gift that your children are to us would just like spark a flame in our hearts to learn from them, to humble ourselves, to posture ourselves fully in all that we are before you because you know exactly how to receive it. Your love is perfect. Your love is divine. And that's exactly what our hearts need now. We thank you and we worship you for it. Amen.